in a museum. So do you. A few weeks ago, I was forwarded a video from the New York Times. Over the next several days, I saw it pop up over and over again, and others brought it to my attention saying variations on, hey, check this out. In just under 10 minutes, video journalist Alexandra Eaton and her colleagues tell an unforgettable story, the history of a painting created in 1837 New Orleans. It's a portrait of a well-to-do family's three children and a black enslaved child named Belazare. Here's a clip. For over a hundred years, this family portrait held a secret, a fourth figure that had been painted out. Now, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has just acquired the painting, one of the few 19th century portraits to realistically portray an enslaved person. Its incredible journey to the Met tells a story about the erasure of black figures throughout American history. And it might have been lost forever, if not for Jeremy K. Simeon. We'll get to Jeremy. There's a lot to this story. So many twists, turns, and characters that played a part in the painting's rediscovery and acquisition. Luckily, we have Alexandra Eaton on today's show to tell us all about it. From Philbrook Museum of Art and Public Radio Tulsa, I'm your host, Jeff Martin, and this is the season eight premiere of Museum Confidential. So I think the best place to begin with this discussion would be to talk about where this all began and how this painting and the story behind it first came across your desk and how you first heard about it. Because I would imagine this is quite a big undertaking and diving into this probably became something bigger than you maybe even imagined. But what was the first moment where you became aware of this? So I became aware of this story uh, almost two years ago. I got a call from Katie Shannon, who's the historian that we feature in the piece. And she had been a source on another project that I had worked on in Louisiana a year before. And in that project, we were looking at cemeteries of enslaved people from former plantations that had been built over by petrochemical plants. So I first met Katie in that context. She, at the time, was an historian at Evergreen Plantation and is one of the few historians working in that corridor who focuses on the lives of the enslaved. Of course, there's the Whitney Plantation, uh, the Laura Plantation, which Katie's also worked at, and Evergreen as well, that do try and highlight the issues of slavery and the experiences of the enslaved population. Um, and that is uh, really not how the rest of the museums along that corridor approach the topic. Um, it's mostly just brushed under the rug. So, 
you know, she really has carved out a niche for herself uh, down there. So, so she called me and left me a voicemail telling me about a great discovery that she had just made. And could I please call her back? So I called her back and she told me about this project that she was working on and this painting about an enslaved child who had been covered up. And the painting itself had been left to languish for many years in the basement of the New Orleans Museum of Art. And it was really only recently in the month or so before she called me about two weeks after Jeremy Simeon had acquired the painting. So it was really at the very beginning of, we could say, his, his uncovering, um, his unerasure. So you've been part of this journey kind of for as it's happening in real time. It's not as if kind of every piece of information was dumped, you know, on your doorstep and you had to kind of untangle it. You kind of were there seeing some of these things happening as, you know, and that's, I'm sure it's different for every story that you work on, but when that first happened, you, you know, did you anticipate a two year journey from that to basically getting here? You know, you're working on many things I would imagine all at once. How much time were you able to, allocate to this story and do you know that there's going to be even though it's a great discovery you get that phone call do you know that it's going to pay off even just in a narrative sense is that just instinctual you think like okay I think there might be something here that I can write about in a way that would satisfy readers who aren't interested in art and aren't interested in this because it kind of scratches a lot of different itches for all uh, people that are just interested in a good story well I think that what you just said, it is just a great story. And even without the almost miraculous ending of the painting being acquired by the Met, the story of Belazare's cover-up is still one that I think resonates very deeply on many levels for many Americans at this moment. So I knew that you know, that no matter what, uh, we had that story. And then there were some questions that I wanted to answer. Um, what happened to Belazare? Who covered him up? And what would happen to the painting? So these were, um, these were questions that we had to let time and research play their roles. And so I would go down to New Orleans and, and either meet a cinematographer there or um, travel down with one. Because just to be clear, my primary art form is video. So I, you know, sort of making short documentaries and my role as a senior video journalist at the times, the writing came later. So, so we would go down and shoot every couple months or so to check in on the research or maybe to check in on the conservation process. And it was only in the last few months that we learned about the Met. And it was, you know, I remember from the very first shoot when I met Jeremy Simeon and I saw the painting, which was hanging in his living room, which already has a great aura about it. It's quite large. It's very striking to see in person. And I remember standing there and, you know, kind of playfully 
you know, asking Jeremy, what are you going to do with this? And, and us not joking around exactly, but musing, well, wouldn't it be great if the Met took this? Right. Cause it seems so outlandish in that moment. Absolutely. It would have been, you know, at the time it seemed like the most surreal and the most fantastic um, possibility, but in the end, that's exactly what happened. So Jeremy Simeon is, is, is an art collector from, I believe, from Baton Rouge uh, originally, and is the, is the hero of the story in a lot of ways. I mean, Belazar, of course, is the hero of the story in many ways. But, you know, once you kind of found Jeremy and got to sit down, interview Jeremy, meet with Jeremy, did you know that, that he would be kind of the son this story would orbit around ultimately and kind of the key uh, figure and bridging kind of the beginning where you started with that great phone call to the end, which was that unexpected moment of the, of the Metropolitan Museum buying that piece, you know, are you able to identify the characters in these documentaries fairly quickly? Well, Jeremy from the get-go exhibited a determination to bring this painting to a wider audience and he saw something extraordinary in it from the very first time he saw it online in an auction record. You know, he recognized immediately that it was something that had not been taken seriously and that was an overlooked uh, piece of work and set out to be the first person in history to understand it differently and tell people about that. So that's a very compelling character. So yeah, I think immediately I was really drawn to his mission and his doggedness. His research capacity is at the level of a journalist. So there's also, um, you know, I admire the lengths to which he goes in order to find things out. And he also, you know, assembled this cast of characters in order to help him achieve his mission to bring Belazare to the surface, who were as dedicated and, you know, everybody that he brought into the fold was sort of the best person in their field for the job. So he put together this amazing team of people to help him achieve his goal. So, you know, when you're doing these video projects, I would imagine the end result of this video what is it about 10 minutes long, give or take? Um, I'm sure that you shot so much, you know, how, how, how do you kind of go about whittling it down? You know, how much footage do you think you shot in the couple of years you're working on this versus getting down to that tight 10 minutes that tell this amazing arc of a story? And do you have limitations really on length? You know, are you able to kind of have the freedom to go longer if you want? Are you always kind of shooting for a certain sweet spot in terms of the length of these videos and, and trying to tighten them up? We shot a lot of material. <laughs> <laughs> we have um, quite a few interviews. Um, and at the end of the day, condensing the narrative into a story that would appeal to a broad audience was my primary goal. There are a lot of nuances that are very interesting to me as somebody that could nerd out on this story for a really long time. I'm sure for people in the museum world, there's a whole other, if you're a Jacques Amon scholar, 
you know, we haven't even scratched the surface on that. So there's quite a bit more detail that that could be uncovered and maybe will be at a later date. But for now, this basic story of the discovery is, you know, step one. I love how you call it um, the cover up. Obviously, it makes me think about Watergate or something. You know, the, the, the cover up is worse than the crime, all these things. But it, this really is a literal cover up. And so, you know, for our listeners, you know, the idea that this portrait of this uh, family, including this slave who worked in this home, was. Uh, removed physically removed from this painting um how common of a practice do we know that this was at the time obviously after the civil war all some things changes things became less maybe culturally accepted to have a painting like this in your home or there's probably various reasons but do we have any sense and maybe not of how common it was for people to have these kind of portraits and then was this practice of the uh, removal fairly widespread? So we have a few examples of what we could call whitewashing of paintings of people of African descent globally. Yeah, there, there's a there's a painting of a, a member of the Medici family with a son or daughter uh, of African descent who was who was covered up. Um, there was a painting in the US, I think it's a Salazar painting of a woman who was a free woman of color and her skin was lightened. Um, so what we know around uh, turn of century New Orleans is that if there had been previously in New Orleans a vibrant society of free people of color after the Civil War and, and after Reconstruction, there was very strong segregation between the races. So during that time, there could be legal implications for having um, a person of African descent in your family. And that might have been a, a reason for white families to want to cover up or, or destroy any ties to family members of African descent. I can't think of any other examples exactly from New Orleans. It's impossible to tell what has been destroyed or what was in an attic or what was in a basement. And that's part of the tragedy here is that um, most of these works don't exist anymore. And it's, it's part of the reason that this painting is so extraordinary. So we have the historical evidence that gives some color for what it might have been like at the time and some sense of motive, but we don't have a lot of examples, although it's possible that that more might come to light. That was a follow-up question I actually was going to ask you, which was, you know, since the story came out, since the video dropped, the response I'm sure has been quite overwhelming. I, I know people who've just shared it with me so many times, even I have to say, yeah, I've seen this several times already. People keep sending it my way. I'm sure something will come to light just because this is now on people's radar as a you know something to look for, something to pursue. And you probably will take months and weeks, if not years, to kind of see the long tail of this story. But I want to touch on museum culture for a second. 
um, we are a museum podcast. Uh, the, the New Orleans Museum, as you say in the piece, kind of set on this work for quite some time. They don't particularly come out looking great in the video. They could have, if they had wanted to, been part of this story, you know, a long time ago. They could have told this story and you know, there would have been something interesting about a museum in the South owning this history, telling this story in a way they could have told this story and kind of claimed it as opposed to putting it in storage or, you know, keeping it off view. Do you have any sense of the motivations really as to why they did not do that? Because there have been so many opportunities, you know, I'm thinking about in the post-George Floyd world, all these different opportunities to kind of look at this issue. And it would have been a win probably from surely a PR or you know visibility transparency move. It would have been a win for the museum. Do you have any sense of why they did not do that? It would be a good idea to ask them. But from what I understand, you know, the New Orleans Museum of Art did make an effort to find the painting after Jeremy Simeon told them about it in 2019. And they actually uh, did feature an image of it in a in an exhibition that they planned. They tried to locate the painting to, to be on view, but they were not able to find it. So, and then Jeremy was able to find it. So that's all we know for sure, you know? I don't think there's necessarily, we're not trying to kind of assert any kind of nefarious motivations behind it, but, you know, I'm sure that they are seeing what's happened with this and, and the kind of praise that's being heaped upon the Met for acquiring this painting and kind of thinking, gosh, that could have been something we could have owned. I will say that the real losers in this piece are the people of New Orleans who who could have had a chance to have this painting at their museum. Um, and now they will not have that. So you know, maybe one day the painting comes on loan or people go to New York. And, and there's no doubt that the Met has educational resources and a platform that will get this painting further than the New Orleans Museum of Art could have. But as far as telling a local story, uh, that that opportunity is gone and I think is is quite sad. This episode of Museum Confidential is sponsored by New Acquisition Funds. Museums are, of course, expensive places to run. Often every dollar is needed just to keep the wheels turning. Electric bills, security, climate control, restoration, the list goes on. But new acquisition funds are different. Sort of like the fun money of an institution, or perhaps to use a somewhat dated term, the walking around money. Sure, sometimes you get a sure thing, Everyone wants to acquire those, but gosh, those can be pricey. What about the newcomers? What about those works for which the buzz is good and the prices seem reasonable for now, but will they live up to all the hype decades from now? Who knows? And that is the fun part, the gamble, spin the wheel, double down, crank that one-armed bandit, 
put those new acquisition funds to use. Who was Belazare? You know, give us a quick overview. I'm sure that was one of the most fascinating parts of the story was kind of uncovering the story of this erased person. So um, Katie Shannon, uh, the historian who figured out Belazare's identity, is the person who pieced together this whole story. And the reason that we know anything about Belazare at all is because Katie's very good at her job. And because Louisiana, since they were a French colony, has a system of record keeping that makes it a little bit easier to find out details about the lives of enslaved people. The way that you do it is tragic because it's through property records and the property records at that time listed human beings that were owned. So Katie um, used these records to, to put a timeline together of Belazare's life. So we know that Belazare was born enslaved in 1822. His mother was Sally. She worked as a cook. He was sold once as a young, very young boy with his mother to a free woman of color before later being sold to Frederick Fry at the age of six. Frederick Fry lived with his wife Coralie on a, in a large house on Royal Street at the site of the present day Hotel Monteleone. And Belazare and his mother were enslaved there until Belazare was in his mid-30s. We don't know what happened to Belazare's mother. We don't have a death record for her. We can't really figure out what happened to her after 1851, I think. And that that not knowing is unfortunately normally how the story goes when you're looking at the lives of the enslaved people. You know, the fact that we have an image at all for Belazare, um, particularly one that doesn't portray him as a caricature or a, a racist stereotype is, is extraordinary. Um, and he also, it's the only image that we have of an of anybody enslaved at Evergreen Plantation. So it's just so rare um, to have any kind of information at all. So back to the Fry household, we know that um, we know that Belazare worked as a domestic, which means that he would have been in close proximity to the family. He may have been the caretaker for the children. And we know that when he was 15 years old, he was painted in the portrait. With the, along with the family. No idea why. No. We have nothing to suggest that he's related to the children in the painting. That is something that a lot of readers have concluded. But since Belazare was not born into the Fry household, we're pretty confident that he isn't a relative. The thing that was striking to me seeing the painting, because, you know, obviously I had never seen this painting before your story was the idea that the three children are making direct eye contact with the viewer and Belazare is not, is looking away. Any thoughts on, you know, was that an intentional thing? Kind of a, uh, would, would that have been, and not that there's a more melancholy look on his face, but there is kind of more contemplative look on his face. Uh, but just having, not having direct eye contact with him does kind of speak to some level of 
hierarchy, you know, some kind of caste system, you know, don't make eye contact. Do we have any sense of whether that was an intentional portrayal? So Mia Albaneris, who is a professor of art history and Africana studies at Tulane University, provided a really extensive visual analysis of the piece. And that is one of the things she remarked upon is the the gaze, Belazare's gaze. And something that she really stressed in her interpretation of the painting is that it's even though Belazare is at the apex of the painting and is in the highest part of the composition, he is by no means portrayed as an equal. And it's important to remember the context in which this painting was painted. He's separated by the landscape from the children. He is, as you say, not looking at the viewer. So you you might also interpret his gaze as being at the eldest daughter as well. So he, you know, we can't quite tell if he's looking off or if he's looking at the children. Yeah. If he's looking at the children, that would connect a lot more strongly with similar pictures of enslaved people that we know from European painting tradition in which um, enslaved people are portrayed at the margins or almost as a furniture or, you know, so this would sort of be related to that um, if that's the case. But one, you know, I, I hope that there will be, I mean, Mia did a beautiful job of studying this painting and she even taught a couple classes about it. Um, and I'm sure it's just the beginning of the scholarship on the the visual aspects of this painting. Uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to touch on, you know, the idea of, and we, we touched on this a little bit already, but there's just so much more I want to know after seeing the video, of course, you know, it just, it, it, it sparks so many ideas and questions in my mind. And I'm sure for so many other viewers and, and people who have encountered this story, uh, you said you shot a lot. It very much to me seems as if there could be a book about this project, a documentary, a full feature length documentary. This may be top secret stuff, but maybe, you know, do you have any sense of that this is the end of the road for you with this project? Or do you see something beyond this video in the future? There's definitely more to the story and my DMs are open. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I encourage anyone listening, if you have not uh, seen this video, please do so. It's quite an amazing uh feet in a very short time to tell such an amazing story and you will be left wanting to know so much more and we'll share links where we can but uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us and congratulations on this story it really knocked my socks off thank you so much Jeff thanks for having me Renee and George Evergreen with their dog after the Return to their hotel suite and they unlock the door. Easily losing their evening clothes, they dance by the light of the moon. A research team at the Royal Museums of Fine Arts of Belgium recently discovered an earlier painted portrait of a woman underneath a 1943 painting by surrealist Rene Magritte, possibly a portrait of his wife Georgette. 
The discovery came via the use of infrared reflectography, which is a technique that uses wavelengths in the infrared range of the electromagnetic spectrum to penetrate through opaque paint layers, thereby revealing otherwise invisible elements of the composition. <sighs> That's a mouthful. Well, that's our show for this week. Museum Confidential is produced and edited by Scott Gregory in the studios of Public Radio Tulsa. To learn more about the station or the museum, visit publicradiotulsa.org or philbrook.org or both. As always, we suggest both. Until next time, look closer. <laughs>